Last week, Dean challenged us if we really believe the Bible, and that if we do, it will affect how I live and how I pray. And I was really challenged by that. And, you know, the question comes to us, do I really believe, and, and what is the evidence of that? If it doesn't change, if there's not something, if you can't look back in your life and say that, because Christ is Lord in my life, that there's something different, then there's something wrong. Uh, two weeks ago, Myron spoke on stewardship and giving, and that was really appreciated. Uh, it kind of scared me a little bit, but I'll be going in a little different direction, but I will be talking also about money. Oh. Uh, Growing up at home on the farm, I remember we dad bought a young bull. It was a good, healthy bull, but it was a really tame bull. And you could most of the time walk up to this bull out in the field. And if you took your time, you could walk up to him. You could scratch his head. You could rub his back. And he loved it. He would stand there and just soak it in. But dad always said, never trust that bull. Keep an eye on him, because you never know when he's going to turn on you. And for a number of years, he was very calm, very unthreatening. He was a 1,500 pound bull. So he had the potential of danger. And we actually enjoyed having him around. He was probably one of the tamest bulls that we had. But, you know, eventually, when least expected, he lashed out and he took away that false sense of security, that false sense of safety that he was giving. And he put everything he had into bringing injury. And, you know, he didn't just intend injury. He intended death. The message title for today is The Deceitfulness of Riches. Turn to Luke chapter 12 be reading some verses from here. I'll actually be uh, going around quite a few different verse, uh, different texts, different scriptures, but uh, I'd like to look here first. Let's begin reading at verse 16 of Luke 12. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool. 
This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up for himself, treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So he had plenty. He had an illusion of satisfaction, of control, security in his life. Notice he says, for myself quite a bit. Store up for myself, for my enjoyment, for my pleasure, my needs. I have security well into the future. I am in control of my life. If you look at verse 19, he was laying up for himself. I believe that was beyond just being prudent. That wasn't just meeting his needs. It was abundance. And not only that, he failed to look around and see the needs around him. If you look at verse 18, instead of sharing his blessing, instead of sharing his abundance, he simply piled it up and built bigger barns to store what he had. And, you know, building those bigger barns actually brought him more problems than what he had before, because if you've ever stored grain, hay, I don't, I don't care which commodity it is, you have to work to keep the moisture out, the rats out, whatever. There's lots of things that will come in and destroy it. So he had all these things, and instead of allowing it to be a blessing to him and to others, it became a curse to him. This night shall thy soul be required. Then whose shall these be? By retaining ownership, instead of thinking of stewardship, for God's discretion and how it was used, his blessing became his curse and it bankrupt his soul. Uh, very, very, very sad commentary on his life. Look back uh, a couple verses before this. Go back to verse 13. And this is Jesus here as he was teaching the people. And while he was teaching, someone else came up and wanted something of him. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. The man's focus was really not on what Jesus was teaching about, about the kingdom of God, and about God's care, his provision and protection. Rather, he was thinking about using Christ's, excuse me, Christ's authority and wisdom to gain inheritance for himself. Now, I don't know the situation. We obviously don't. Maybe it was an unfair thing, or maybe he was trying to gain an inheritance that wasn't really supposed to be his. We don't know that, but he was missing the point. His focus was in the wrong thing. So 
as I was thinking about the dangers of the possessions that we have, the, the things around us, the things that we touch, at what point, how much wealth do we have to have before it's dangerous or a snare in our lives? Or is the New Testament believer's wealth or the lack of it totally unrelated to his relationship with God? Is the Christian beggar in India who lives on the street with nothing, not even a pillow to lay his head, more spiritual than the American farmer with a 500-cow dairy and all its assets that it takes to run that, maybe worth several million? Should we be working to gain material things? And then as you answer that in your mind, why? Does it matter how much I do or don't have? If it's all about our heart and attitude, does it matter? But do we recognize the temptations and the dangers that come with possessions and wealth? I think we're fooling ourselves if we fail to recognize that. As we ponder what occupation in life to meet our needs, do we seriously and honestly evaluate its impact on our lifestyle, our family, relationships, church life, and kingdom work? Or does potential income and the excitement of that vocation lure us into pushing those concerns aside and justify to ourselves the time and demands that it puts on us? Do we recognize how easy it is to justify ourselves in what we want. You know, if something's important to us, usually we can rationalize it in our mind. Do we honestly put God first and then instill checkpoints in our life to help us maintain that? Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, let's read a couple of verses here. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Lay not, lay not, it says, lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and dust, dust rust, I'm sorry, doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what do we treasure? What we treasure exposes where our heart really is. Do my priorities that I proclaim validate what I believe the Bible's definition of real treasure is. Uh, I appreciated different thoughts that Myron brought out on treasure and what we 
what we really think treasure is. You know, we will pursue what we think is most valuable. Uh, go down a couple of verses in verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Go down to verse 31. Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So we cannot serve God in money. God doesn't say it's really hard. He says we cannot. Am I honest with myself? Are you honest with yourself? Who is your master? We cannot serve two. Worrying about and prioritizing the things of this earth are normal, it says. It says here the Gentiles do these things. But that's not what we're called to do. We're to put his values and his priorities first. And worrying, or the last verse there, worrying about things is another snare brought on by having the wrong focus. First, turn to First Timothy. Like I said, I will be looking at a number of different scriptures. First Timothy six, starting at verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. So discontent, longing for more, opens our lives to vulnerability and to destruction. Longing for and focusing on gain, on temporal wealth, rather than on heavenly wealth, has a very high cost in our lives if we allow it in our hearts. Uh, it's very, going back to what I said earlier, it's very easy for us to justify what we really want. We can rationalize it. We can sugarcoat it, but are we being honest with ourselves? 
there's a number of things that pursuing wealth will cost us. Uh, turn back to Ecclesiastes, and there's only one verse there, but Ecclesiastes 4.8 There is one alone, and there is not a second. And he's talking here about vanities. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labor. Neither, in his, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. So... When we pursue things, why do we do it? What are we going to do with it? Here he talks about somebody who is pursuing but has neither friend nor son to share it with. Uh, I believe that pursuing riches has a very strong tendency to make us neglect relationships. If we pursue that, just in the area of our relationships, if we pursue riches rather than relationship, uh, it's going to leave us empty and lonely. Uh, riches can actually leave us very poor in reality. Pursuing riches is very easily, well, it will very easily take a much larger part of your time than what we think it will. Uh, there is a illusion there that if we have just a little more, we can enhance those relationships around us. I think that is, I think that's an illusion. Uh, it will claim more and more of our time. And usually I think it will do it so subtly that we don't notice it until it's too late. I haven't, but I doubt any of you have either heard of anybody saying as they come to their deathbed that they wish they could have done more, have spent more time accumulating a little more. Rather, you hear the opposite. You hear them say they wish they had spent more time with God, with loved ones, with family, building relationships. But that is one of the illusions that wealth will try to put on us is that it will bring meaning and satisfaction in our life. Turn to Proverbs 22, looking at another verse. I think I'm going to have to leave a few of these out, but let's turn to this one. verse 16, he that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. So taking advantage of others to gain wealth or giving out of wrong motives to gain favor will bring 
ruined relationships in our lives. Uh, part of the illusion and the deception of riches is that we typically are not aware of the grip that it has on our life. And so that we will do this unknowingly. Let's turn to Acts chapter 5, a familiar story. This is in the early church, a story here of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Acts 5 will begin at verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily menstruation. I'm sorry, I'm beginning at verse 6, uh, chapter 6. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and took a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it? that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and as many have heard, as heard these things. So what was their sin? Why did they do it? Why? Peter said they lied to the Holy Spirit. So why did they connive? It's obvious from the connotation here that Peter talks here that they pre-planned this thing together. Not only did they pre-plan it, but they intentionally misrepresented what the land brought. What is it about possessions that will cause many well-intended people to become dishonest? The power of the purse. Oh, there is something about money that will continually draw most people. Uh, if you're one of those that never has to struggle with the draw of money, count your blessings, but also don't let down your guard. Like 
the bull that attacked when least expected, it may come upon you also. So we don't want to live in fear, but we do need to be aware. God does not want us to live in fear, but he does want us to be aware to the dangers that are around us. They had that strong desire to hold for themselves, to have in their possession. Uh, they anticipated pleasure from having that money. It's very obvious that it was planned out. It says being private. So they planned this together. But the pleasure that they got was very short-lived. The temptation to impress and to have for themselves, not it wasn't wrong for them if they would have kept some for themselves, but they intentionally misrepresented. Peter said they lied. And what was their reward? It was death. Uh, obviously, that doesn't always happen. How many of us would be here if that happened? Okay. I'm not going to turn there, but in the parable of the soils, it talks about the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire to have. The desire to have. So it wasn't necessarily that they had, but the desire. It choked out the good seed and made it unfruitful. There was no harvest. So how willing are we to take risks in our spiritual life in pursuit of something that Jesus specifically said choked out and made God's word unfruitful? Back again, what is really valuable to us? Let's turn to Mark 10. A few verses here. Mark 10 looking at verse 17. This is talking here about the rich young ruler while Jesus was teaching. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled down to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Do you think that was total honesty? Just a little side note. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, 
Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for those that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto them, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, brethren, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. The rich young ruler felt a lack in his life, I believe, and that's why he came to Jesus. He wanted eternal life. Note there, that's what he asked. What may I do that I may inherit eternal life? That was a, a good and noble desire. But I think Jesus addressed the one thing in his life that he wanted more than eternal life. He addressed what was on the throne of his heart, his possessions. Jesus wanted him to have treasure with real value. And Jesus goes on down in, in the latter part of that text there talking about true treasure. Are we willing to give up those things to have true treasure? Not things that are wrong, but things that cannot be first in our life. But are we any less inclined today to allow other things other than Christ to be on the throne of our hearts. I think the danger is just as real. And what is Christ laying his finger on in our life that he's asking us to put away? to be willing to give up, to take off of the throne and put him first place. Do we want a hundredfold harvest? Like he's talking there in verse 30, do, do we desire a hundredfold of harvest? Of the treasure that is on the throne of your life. If that treasure is wealth and riches along with the 
treasure will come its own reward. Hopefully we are all pursuing heavenly treasure. Uh, I don't think I'm going to turn there, but uh, think of Balak in Numbers. Balak's response to his opportunity for wealth. And I, as I was reading this, one thing that stood out to me in a different translation, it almost gave the connotation that when they first came, they came with the fee that was expected to offer him to come. This was Balak coming to Balaam. And Balak offered him the fee that was, I guess, is a normal expected fee to come and to do divination and to put a curse on the Israelites. Uh, God told him, no. Well, he went, he did the right thing. He went and asked God if that's what he should do. God told him a very distinct, clear no. You know, the, so he sent them home, but they came back. And it said this time he sent more noble people and apparently higher up authorities to come to try to get him to come. And it says, you tell me what reward you want. In other words, you, if you'll just come, name your price. I'll give it to you. Uh, and I think Balaam's response was good. The first part, if you'd have left it at that. He said, if you give me all the money, all the gold and silver in your house, I cannot go unless God says that I can. Had God already given him the answer? Yes. God already made a very clear, distinct no. Balaam went back again and asked. Why did he go back again and ask? I believe it was because Balaam wanted the reward. The thought and the appeal of wealth caused him to go against what he knew was right. And he went back and God said, okay, if you're going to go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. Obviously, it wasn't God's divine plan that he go and curse the Israelites. But, you know, Balaam kept that mindset of pursuing the riches. The appeal of the riches was there until he was caught talking with his donkey. Okay? That's what it took for him to wake up to what he, how foolish he was being, was carrying on a conversation with his donkey. Uh, that doesn't seem like the best place to find ourselves. Going on to Naaman in the Old Testament. In Kings, I don't think we'll turn there. Uh, we know the story. Naaman came to Elisha because the king sent him. 
Well, Naaman came to the king of Israel first, and then the, Elisha told him to send the king to him. And we know how Naaman went down to the river. He dipped himself seven times. He, he was obedient to what Elisha asked. He didn't want to be, but he was. And he was cleansed from his leprosy. He came back to the prophet, and the prophet wanted to reward him. He wanted to give him a grand reward for healing him. And Elisha's words were, no, he refused to take it. But his servant Gehazi was there, and Gehazi was snared by what he saw. He saw the gold. He saw the wonderful, I don't know what they looked like. They must have been very comfortable and very eye-catching clothes. And I can just about imagine his heart dropping when Elisha said, no, take it all back. We don't want it. He was enthralled by the reward that was offered. You know, he lied three times to gain that reward. He was willing to lie to his master. Now, do you think that Elisha had seen, I'm sorry, do you think that Gehazi had seen Elisha work miraculous things and being able to know and understand what was not always out in the open? Yeah. What made him think that Elisha would not know that he pursued after Naaman and asked for some of these things? Oh, we've we got some guests coming and they need, we don't have anything to give them. So we need some couple of your talents of gold and some of the clothes. We need some of that to give them to make uh, gifts to our guests that have come. He lied three times. It was a very high price to pay. Uh, I believe it's the last verse in that chapter. It says, Elisha told Naaman that the lesser leprosy that Naaman had lost would be his, and not only be his, it would be on his descendants forever. Now, is that a high price to pay for two talents of gold and I don't I can't remember how many changes of clothes? Was that a good bargain? No. Definitely not. In Timothy 6, it talks about loving riches. And I think it'll, it brings out how it will slowly entrap our heart if it's not rooted out. It will cause us to compromise our honesty, our integrity, our desire to reach out and help others' needs around us. I believe we need to root out and to flee away from that trap, uh, not in the way that Lot's wife fled from Sodom. She looked back with longing. 
So are we saying no to the things around us, to the riches that are offered at times, but do we keep really longing for it? Or do we turn our back and set our eyes forward to what is really true riches? Oh, we know what happened with Lot's wife by her longing and looking back. I think she was, I think that was the main reason she looked back is because there was a deep longing. She was going away, but she, we could say her heart was still back there. In Timothy, uh, latter verses, a couple of latter verses there, it talks about uh, being willing to communicate with those around us that have need. So we need to be, with what God has blessed us, we need to be willing to share. Uh, we need to be willing to let go of what God has put in our hand. Let's be honest with ourselves and allow God to search our hearts. See if there's any wrong desire in my heart. And we, I think we all know the verse, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Are we willing to really open up our hearts to God's inspection, God's cleansing that he wants to bring in our lives. I think some of the things that we need to recognize about the deceitful, how deceitful riches are, uh, we tend to think that if we have just a little more, we will have less of life's problems. We usually can't put a finger how much more that is, but just a little bit more, then we won't have the problems that we have. Oh, Job talks about that wealth does not isolate us from the problems that life brings us. There's a lot of things that will bring that out. Uh, if your health deteriorates, if you have storms of life, earthquakes, whatever, whenever there's a calamity in life, how much... <laughs> Does wealth really help us? Part of the deceitfulness is that it wants us to think it will carry us through. It will be what will sustain our life. That's just not true. I won't turn there. In Titus, Paul encourages us to help others, not being self-centered, but using our resources for the good of others, not holding tightly, not hoarding it up. Uh, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, read a couple of verses there. This is concerning Moses. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. 
By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses was able to see what is really valuable. He was able to fix his eye on true treasure. He recognized how short the riches of this world really are. Let's turn to Matthew 16. Just a couple verses there yet. Matthew 16, starting at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will, shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So, what, first of all, what do riches gain us in the long term? I'm thinking of the temporal riches. And then what do we really consider as real treasure? What am I willing, what risks of my soul am I willing to take? You know, we do have admonition also, and I'm not going to turn there for time, uh, but we do have admonition uh, in several places in Timothy, Thessalonians, we have admonition to meet our responsibilities, to take care of our families. We are supposed to work, and he says, he who, sh he who refuses to work shouldn't eat. Uh, we're not supposed to be busy body bodies, just uh, basically refusing to work, but we're supposed to try to meet our needs. So we do need some material thing, assets, food. We, we do need some. Uh, but in our lives, in our circles, how easy is it and where do we cross the line and focus too much on the needs and wants that we have, building up wealth that it distracts us from real riches. It ensnares our heart and gives us a very false sense of security that not only never satisfies, it is never quite enough, but also leaves us ineffective in God's kingdom. I don't think I'm going to turn there. Uh, James 5, the first couple of verses, I think we're all familiar with that. Uh, it talks about defrauding those whose wages we owe. Those who, uh, when we have ill-gotten gain, it will be a witness against us. If we hoard up what God has given us, whether it is ill-gained 
or whether it is honestly gained if we hoard it to ourselves rather than using it as God intended, it says it will be a witness against us. I'd like to turn yet to Proverbs, a verse in Proverbs 30. Verse 7, two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. I'm sorry, verse 7. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. So the writer here is simply desiring that he has enough to meet his needs, but only that much because he still wants to feel need for God's provision and direction in life, but not enough so that he is tempted. He doesn't want to need, be in need enough that he is still tempted to steal because of want. So do you find yourself in that measure of contentment where you are. You know, Revelation gives a very stark picture of the value of wealth when you put it into light of eternity. But even now on this earth while we're here, its value is very low in comparison to true treasure. Uh, do we realize and do we really grasp how irrelevant the things that we can touch and feel, the things that we see, how irrelevant that will be in eternity? And yet it has a way of altering where we end, where we spend eternity. So let's continually ask God to examine and guard our hearts. Back to the bull there on the farm. Uh, you know, after my heart came back into my chest and started beating regularly, I didn't have to be told again to watch for that bull. No matter where I was at in, out in the pasture around the barn, I was always tried to be aware of where he was. I knew the reality of the danger. The challenge to me was, am I as aware and as awake to the dangers that the Bible proclaims much stronger about the things that want to drag us down and ensnare us in this world, do I really believe it? 